0: Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences
1: share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks, as always, very much for listening. Today, we're going to talk about aligning our products and our communications with our customers' needs. And, but before we do that, I have a few announcements to make. First of all, the ACPLS annual meeting is October 25th through 27th. We've got a fantastic lineup, but you need to know that the price goes up on April 1st. So if you register by this Friday, which is March 31st, you'll save 500 bucks off the ultimate price of of the meeting. And you can do that by going to acp-ls.org/annual-meeting so check that out great agenda it's uh it's up there on the website we're filling in the details about the speakers their bios and their topics but the registration is fully refundable until september 15th so you should lock in your ticket now and worry about your schedule later The other announcement I want to make is that um, I'm going to skip an episode after this one. So the episode that comes out next will, instead of being two weeks from now, will be either three or four weeks from now. So don't give up on me. I will be back. I've got some great speakers lined up. We just don't have them committed to specific times yet. And I'm doing a little traveling, so uh, you should um, come back in a... In a month or so, and start up again. Now, let's get on with today's show. Marina Hopp is the managing director at Vivio Limited. Vivio helps bioscience companies to understand their customers more intimately so that they're able to deliver effective marketing that improves revenue. Before Vivio, she served as a brand and customer insight director at Horizon Discovery and also as a strategic marketing manager at GE Healthcare. Marina, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. So today, uh, we're going to talk about matching our products and our communications with customer needs. And you and I had a conversation before, it seems not uncommon that products and features sometimes get developed in research and development, and they're thrown over the fence to marketing, who are told to go out and sell this new thing without really knowing whether anyone wants it. So if that's a problem we're trying to avoid or if we have to fix, how, how do we do that?
0: Unfortunately, it's a pretty common problem with life science companies because they're often run by scientists and engineers where the emphasis is on the science and the product and sometimes the customer's really an afterthought. I think the products really fail for a number of reasons it could be anything from you know the customer doesn't perceive that they have a need for the product or they're just not enough customers to buy the product Um, maybe it doesn't meet the customer expectations because one no one's actually asked the customer what they want or it's so revolutionary that the customer is going to need a lot of education and some companies are just really not prepared to spend the time and money to educate customers in the long run. Um, or it could be a technical issue like, you know, you just haven't got the pricing right or, or the timing's wrong, it's too early or too late to the market when a competitor might have already taken um, the share of the market. Uh, I think, you know, the earlier you can gather customer insight um, the product con- at the product concept stage, um, the easier it will be to address some of these issues. So. You know if you're going to have to go out there and speak to customers and to find this information you're going to have to find out figure out who the target customer is what market segment they're in um, and you'll find out very quickly how easy it is to find them um, and to find out how many people have this problem and also have the money to solve the problem I think if you're unfortunate enough to be gifted a product that hasn't involved any customer insight uh, the best thing is to go out there and to speak to customers as quickly as possible. Um, I don't think customer research really has to be lengthy or expensive. In my experience, interviewing maybe a dozen or so people across a uh, cross-section of your target customers, can, you know, face-to-face or on the phone, can really give you an understanding of how the product might work in the market. For example, I worked on uh, a microscopy project and it was for a provider of microscopy and high content analysis. And they developed a cell benched an- a bench type analyzer. And it was based on an existing platform, which they already had. So they just added some additional functionality so that the instrument could do things like cell counting and cytometry, um, as well as, in- as imaging. And when we first got this instrument from uh, the R&D team, they had already locked down the specs and the beta version was about to go out the door so at this really late stage we had to set about trying to find a unique angle that would differentiate the product (laughs) what was a really crowded market so what we did was go out there and talk to some customers and set up some focus groups to test the concept and what the customers told us initially was you know we really don't want a hybrid instrument because it probably won't do any one of the three things uh, very well so we then had to go and really find a problem to sort to suit the instrument um, and one that hadn't already been used by the competitors steering away from the issue that it was actually a hybrid instrument. Um, So we started to talk to people about when they do cell culturing and when they really need something that can check the health of their cells and we found out that it was really at those early stages of cell culture when it, it was a product like this would be handy um, so we were then able to position the instrument as a cell health check instrument and we actually started to target an adjacent market which wasn't just cell biologists but protein biologists as well, as well who uh, maybe had to culture cells to get their protein um, so we were able to then uh, find a position in the market but I think you know if you are going to avoid this happening the customer insight uh, really has to come early on when you're developing the product. Um, so marketing really needs to have a seat at the table very early on in the product development process. And I know it's quite hard for marketing to become part of a development team. But one thing that I've used is um, I, I've run a project where we looked at all of the new product introductions. And we looked at the amount of customer insight that was there at the start of the project, and then we looked at the correlation between how much customer insight had been put into the project and the outcome of the project. And it was interesting to see that there's really high correlation between low quantities of customer insight and market research and, fail- and very high failure rates. So it was pretty compelling evidence um, to really get the senior leaders within the company to start thinking about how they approach product development and product launches. I think involving the marketing team talking to customers really early on in the innovation and product development process um, helps you get the right products um, to customers. And you, you can then position them properly so that you get rapid market share. Um, it's going to be so much better if you've had that insight early on than if you try to retrofit a value proposition uh, the way we had to with the cell imager.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's shocking how often that happens because it seems... In- I don't want to say obvious, but natural maybe that you would ask customers what they want. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit more about how to do that. But obviously it does happen that products are developed without enough customer input. And so the story you told there is a nice save. You often hear people talk about, oh, here's a solution looking for a problem. Um, And you imagine that most of those never work out but you actually made that work out. So that's that was fantastic. And then uh, a couple other things I love that you said. First of all, I just love the phrase <laughs> being gifted a product by R&D. So that that just cracks me up. And um, you, know, you talked about products that are revolutionary, which of course is what R&D is probably trying to do in a lot of cases and not really thinking about a customer who, Uh, Might appreciate the revolutionary nature of it if they had enough education, because probably if it's revolutionary, by definition, people weren't even thinking about it. Right. And um, so that brings another set of challenges with it, which doesn't mean it can't be done. Just means uh, you probably need a little more input. Right.
0: Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a certain inertia that exists when you're taking something to market that that nobody's seen before or um, that people are just really not familiar with what you're trying to do. And it might bring them lots of uh, benefit, um, but it it just might not be the right thing at the right time. So, you know, um, I think as marketers, we don't always anticipate the level of inertia that needs to be overcome for customers to really change to a new product. I think scientists are particularly uh, sort of set in their ways. Um, You know, they've got years of historical data uh, which they like to use to compare their new results. Um, And so change is really quite difficult for them. Um, I think there's several examples where uh, customers haven't bought an innovative new product, even if it's given them real improvements. I think because they really require customers to change their behaviour. And I think, you know, like all of us, scientists... uh, subject to the same sort of psychology as, as everybody else in terms of behavioural change. And I also think there's a cost associated with change. And I think there the are really broad categories of, of cost. There is the actual transaction cost of buying the new piece of uh, equipment or the new product. And then there's a learning cost because they have to spend time and effort actually learning how to effectively use the product. And there's also an obsolescence cost, which is one that I think we often overlook. And that's when you switch from one product to another. And it's like, you know, when you change from VCR to um, disc or Blu-ray. Um, for scientists, I think it's actually about the data. So, you know, they've collected an enormous amount of data and all of their historical data suddenly becomes less comparable the new data they're producing on the new instruments, so so that switching cost is uh, something that we all need to take into account when we think about launching a new product in the market.
1: Yeah, especially uh, that that historical data is really important. Particularly, I've I've experienced this with some of my clients for diagnostic products because they need to be able to show that the results they're getting, even though they it may be better results or they can get them more easily or faster or whatever it is that the new product does for them. They need to be able to validate and show that the results they're getting now are comparable to what they were getting in the past. And obviously for those companies, um, that's a door that they're going to open very cautiously because they, not only do they have to prove to themselves that it's true, they have to prove to all their customers that, the data they're getting is is going to be comparable
0: and i think as marketers you know we have to anticipate those kinds of barriers and um, i've seen examples in diagnostics where actual third-party labs have validated um, the new product against the old method um, to produce independent results that show that they are comparable and and those are sometimes uh, things that you can share with potential customers to help overcome those barriers but I think we don't really appreciate the, the cost of adopting a new product and the fact that it really does involve trade-offs for customers. So you know they're getting a lot of new useful features, but they also have to give up some of the benefits. And even if those benefits are simply just having to do things in a different way, so you know, when planning a new product launch, I think it's really useful to sit down and make a list of all the perceived benefits and then a- another column with all the perceived losses the customer might incur. Um, and it's really important to not trivialize these things. So you know, even if it's only a perception on the customer's part, I think you should take that uh, quite seriously. So you know, we really need to fully appreciate the changes we are asking the customers to make, even if it seems small. And, you know, I think the products that produce technology leaps forward are ones that really often require the biggest behavioural changes. So it's really important that we tackle each one of these changes and and find ways of addressing them in the the eyes of the customer. And then also have a reasonable amount of patience and be prepared to deliver a long educational process. So, you know, embrace yourself for slow adoption because uh, this sort of change, particularly in the scientific community, takes a lot longer than we sometimes think.
1: I really like that you pointed that out. I mean, the whole idea of perceived loss, because of course every marketer gets their hands on a new product and they just want to make a list of the benefits and how can they sell it. Um, But really, you know, I'm sure the salespeople would tell them that the bigger is is what you say is what is the perceived loss and what's the barrier to getting them to adopt something new and that whole educational process. So that's, that's really valuable. Let's, let's talk about those customers and doing that kind of research. So like finding out what the customers want and also which customers you should be talking to, because you mentioned in, one you, in the first answer um, about looking for segments. And I think I heard you say in there, like, it doesn't have to be hard. And you also learn something just by how difficult it is to find people that are potential customers whether you have a a good idea or not but so talk a little bit about that process.
0: Yes I think that in my experience sales is often very protective of their customer database and they very often don't want to give you the names of people to contact and don't let marketing loose on our you know our customers Um, so but it's important to talk to customers it's also important to talk to people that are not customers so Um, I think the other challenge is it's often really difficult for customers to articulate what they need. So one technique that I've used quite successfully is observational research. If you can persuade a customer to let you come in and watch them doing whatever it is they're interested in doing, um, it's even better if you can actually get them to let you film it. Because what you can do then is sit down with them afterwards and play back the video and discuss it with them. And then really probe each step of the workflow to understand what they do and why they do it. Um, Because sometimes they do things without really realizing consciously what they're doing or why they're doing it. And and that's a really good way to identify a need. So they they often follow a protocol or a method because that's what they've always done and, and they're so used to doing it in that way. But when you ask them to reflect on what they're doing and they actually see themselves on film, um, it really produces some enlightening insights. I think another technique that I've used quite successfully is focus groups because you actually get the customer feedback there and you actually get some really good interaction between the customers who are sitting in the focus group. So they might listen to each other and challenge each other and say, well, that doesn't really describe my process because I do it like this and, and, you know, my need is slightly different. So you get these really detailed usage scenarios that that you can really use um, to gain that insight that you need.
1: I really like that. So um, some things I hadn't thought about of. and this, uh, this is a topic we covered a couple episodes ago with uh, Alana Drucker who does qualitative research, and she talked about um, I guess the technical term is an ethnography, which is you know, watching how someone does what they do. What I really like about what you mentioned is not only using it uh, and filming their actions and how they use a particular product, for the marketers, but showing it back to them and then sharing it with other people who use the product and then getting that whole discussion going, because I'm sure there are a ton of ideas that come out of that. People realize, oh, when they see themselves doing it, go, oh yeah, that's the part I hate, but they don't think about that in the middle of their protocol. And other people go, well, that's a dumb way to do it. We do it this way. And that's probably where all the, the, uh, the valuable insight comes from is getting a bunch of scientists talking to each other about how they do it.
0: I think those are the real light bulb moments. Um, you know, and I, the other thing I would mention is, you know, talk to a wide spectrum of people to start with. You can always narrow down later, but you know, don't just talk to the your best customer or, or people who are favorable to the product, um, because you're going to get initial bias there. Uh, you know, if they like your company, and they like the products. But try to include some customers, or, or even customers of competitor products, who have this perceived problem, uh, and see what they say about the, the uh, product, even if it, you know you've got to take some criticism, and and it might be a bit tricky, you get really critical feedback on the product concept at a really early stage. So if you do need to make changes, um, it's great. I worked with a particular uh, customer group, and they. We're looking at a concept, and they took one look at it, and, and somebody said, "No, that's only for screeners because we do something completely different." And and they had been our profile type customers. Suddenly, we had to start delving into that and saying, "Well, why do you think that this instrument is only for screeners?" Uh, and it was very illuminating to see that, and it was also very interesting to see why they chose the competitor product, uh, even though we felt our con- our product concept was much more superior. So, talk to the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'd say.
1: Yeah, I like that. It's uh, yeah, I can imagine if you talk to your best customers. First of all, they their motivations are maybe somewhat different. Maybe they're early adopters, or they're already a fan of yours, and they they want to help you. And they may be someone who just thinks the way you do. And of course, those are the people you won't have difficulty selling anyway. So. <laughs> you, you'll get more information from the people who are kind of on the fence about your products and and get real feedback from them.
0: I actually got a great example of of that. Um, I worked for a product uh, marketing team where they had a protein analysis instrument And they'd been in the market for about 10 years. They were doing really well. And then in the last two years, they suddenly saw the sales numbers start to stagnate. And um, they were due to bring out a new instrument. So we're saying, oh, well, it's, you know, the customers are just holding off because they want to buy the new instrument. Um, There had been some more competitors enter the market. um, But, you know, people were saying, well, the competitor product's not really particularly good. It's not superior as ours. Um, But when we actually started to talk to the customers we found out that not only did most of them actually own the competitor instrument, some of them actually owned two or three. And even though it was cheaper and less superior to to the instrument of, of this particular company, they shared with us the fact that they found the market leader's instrument really complex to use. So you really had to be a skilled operator. And to get this technical knowledge, you almost had to apprentice yourself to a master user over a number of years the competitor instrument on the other hand was really easy to use it had been developed to be quick and easy and even if they felt the data wasn't that robust which they admitted it still gave them comparable results so it meant that they could do very quick screens and do quick exploratory work to define their assay conditions and then transfer those assay conditions over onto the more sophisticated instrument and get publishable results So what the competitor had done was it had talked to all of the customers that the leader had discounted um, who weren't looking for a complicated, difficult to use instrument that gave very high quality results, but just wanted something that was really quick and easy to do screens with. So they had found a niche and I think it's really a classic example of disruptive innovation you know where a smaller company with fewer resources comes in and completely challenges the established incumbent and the incumbent was focusing really on improving its products and services for a very small few people in the market at that very top end and had completely disregarded all of these um, this very large customer group um, at the bottom end and uh, you know, by the time they woke up that really the competitors had got a foothold and were delivering a much more suitable uh, instrument and were already starting to upgrade the capability of their instrument so it was a very difficult situation to find yourself in
1: yeah i i love that story i mean it's uh so they focus in on a almost the very beginning of the workflow with an instrument that's as you say, easier to use and faster, and hold off on the more expensive instrument for um, later analyses. But it, that gets them in the door and making friends with the customers who are, of course, going to help them improve their instrument all along until um, they're expanding and taking market share.
0: Absolutely. And you know, the customers were buying two or three of these instruments because they were, and they weren't considerably cheaper they were were somewhat cheaper but we'd love to have been in the position where we were selling that quantity so they were getting the volume they needed um, by making them that bit cheaper and, and addressing those needs at the early part of the workflow And by the time the the incumbent woke up to the problem, it was really a situation where we could only recommend that they could either um, do some price positioning adjustments to narrow the gap on the price, um, maybe do some software upgrades to improve the usability, offer some free training to make it seem easier to use. But in the long term, they really needed to address their business strategy uh, and either redesign the instrument to meet the customer requirements more closely or try and buy the competitor, or or actually give up on the business. So it had some really fundamental impacts on the running of the business. Because taking no action really meant they were just going to have a slow and lengthy decline.
1: Yeah, I I just love the stories where um, a product that isn't the best has a way to win. Because Let's face it, most products aren't the best, but there there might be something it can be the best at um, if you think about it differently rather than just, you know, what is the objective, you know, highest quality or whatever. Um, So I I just think those are fascinating and and fun stories. So clearly, you know, um, technology isn't the only differentiator. So what other ways have you seen, or do you have other examples where companies have moved the focus away from the product itself? So other, other ways companies compete if they have a parity or less than superior product?
0: I think you're right. There are a lot of situations where a, a company has a parity product, and um, and you really have to try and find some way of differentiating it. And I think the key is really to understand what's frustrating the customer and look for ways to differentiate the offering on the basis of that frustration. So you know, if you really understand what's going on in the customer's mind and how they're behaving and the sort of experiences they have and, and the beliefs they hold, there are ways that you can find needs and, and uh, ways to differentiate the product. So one example I have is a, a company who's selling chromatography columns and they're pretty commoditized, so you know they really wanted to try and increase their market share. And one of their main targets was academic scientists and biologists, people doing you know, molecular biology or cell biology, um, who occasionally express and purify proteins, but it's not really the, the sort of mainstay of their research. And so we did some customer interviews, and we found out that the customers don't really do protein purification frequently enough to understand all the ins and outs of it. So they lack the in-depth skills and and they don't really want to spend too much time thinking about what column to use as long as it roughly does what they need it to do. Um, The downside of that is that they frequently get it wrong and it's very frustrating and it wastes a lot of their precious protein. So there's a real benefit to selecting the right product from the start. So this presented a real opportunity for the company because we could actually position it as the expert in protein purification and, you know, really to become the supplier that offers the simplest way to get you the right separation column that works. Um, and they then went further and said, OK, well, if it, you don't actually get what you need from our selection tools that we're going to help you with, we'll actually have a, a line, a, a number that you can call and you can talk directly to a customer service person and who will help you find the right solution. So it was really about crafting a marketing campaign around a really simple message, which was small things in your protein purification process can have a really big impact on your scientific results. So even though their product was very similar to tens and dozens of other products out there, It was really about the service delivery and the educational webinars and the product selection guides um, the customer forums that they were able to put in place to make them stand out as a supplier that really gets you the right equipment to do what you need to do
1: i like it it's uh the again you know a parody product which many fall into It's, it's not the end of the game. It's, uh, there's always for every scientist there, there are problems once they, they have it. And how do I choose the right one? How do I use it correctly? What's the way to get the most out of it? And this is a huge opportunity, I think for lots of companies to differentiate themselves in solving the usability problem after the purchase. Um, and and obviously then create a, um, Huge bond, for lack of a better word, loyalty um, with your customer because now you're really building that relationship as oh these are the people that really help me out. They don't just sell me things; they're they're with me after I buy the product, and um, so lifetime value goes up. Marina. Um, I want to thank you very much for all this uh, this great information on on really things that a lot of marketers I think should be doing and might make I'm sure it all makes sense to them, but maybe not everybody's executing this as well as they should. Where can people go to learn more about you and what you do?
0: Well, I think the best place is probably our website, so that's vivio v i v e o dot io. Um, or check out my LinkedIn or Twitter, Facebook. Um, We have company profiles there, and I would love to talk to people and continue the conversation.
1: Fantastic. So I will link those up. I'll put up your LinkedIn profile as well as vivio.io in the show notes. And I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me today.
0: Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure.
1: You bet. Bye-bye. Lots of good information there from Marina Hopp at Vivio. I really like, I love all those examples of how companies that don't have the best product can still compete. There are lots of ways into your customers' hearts, minds, and wallets. And uh, I just enjoyed all those examples, as well as the more fundamental aspects of talking to customers to find out what they really want, what will make a difference and how much of a barrier needs to be overcome to get them to switch technology. So thank you again, Marina for a great conversation. As always, I'm going to ask you folks, thank you so much for listening, but if you enjoy the podcast, please tell two of your friends and that will help us build an audience. I love networking. If you think there are people we should be talking to and you would like to hear on this podcast or topics you want me to cover, send me an email, chris at com, And I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye.